Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to another episode in our Extra Awesome series. Now, every now and again, we release an episode of Extra Awesome to talk about the things that we are so into that we wouldn't normally cover on our regular Friday episodes of Sorta Awesome. I'm so glad you guys are here with me today because we are going to be discussing the recent Hulu series, an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Joining me today is my longtime dear friend, regular co-host of Sorta Awesome and the host of Smartest Person in the Room podcast, Laura Tremaine. Laura, blessed be the fruit. <laughs> Under his eye, Megan. <laughs> so just so you know, we're going to structure this episode, this conversation the way we often do when we talk about items in current culture, which means that the first part of this episode is going to be completely spoiler free. For those of you who may want to watch the show in the future, or maybe you have decided you're not going to watch it, but you'd kind of like to know a little bit more about what all of the buzz is about The Handmaid's Tale. So this first part will be spoiler free. We'll be sure to let you know as we transition into the second part of the episode, when we will be talking about specific plot points and character spoilers. So Laura, let's start with the basics of the series. It's on Hulu, streaming on Hulu, 10 episodes. Stars Elizabeth Moss in the lead role of Offred. Now, she picked up an Emmy nomination, and the whole series, in fact, picked up 13 Emmy nominations, which is not nothing, right? No, and so well-deserved. This was the very first Hulu anything I'd ever watched. I subscribed to Hulu for this show, and I'm so glad I did. I'm so into it now. I also, just as an absolute editorial side note, preferred the Hulu interface to Netflix interface, like, by leaps and bounds. I know, they really, they have got it down. Like, this is their thing. And they, it's very easy to navigate as a user. I totally agree. Totally agree. So yeah, so the series has gotten lots of critical acclaim, um, lots of nods from the Emmys, for sure. It also stars Joseph, Joseph Fiennes as Commander Waterford, Yvonne Strahovski <laughs> is Serena Joy Waterford. She is such a great actress. I love her in so many things. I've loved her since she played the role of Sarah back on Chuck, uh, with a, which was a fun series. The amazing and incandescent Samira Wiley as Moira. Tons of standout performances. So again, this is an adaptation of a 1985 novel from Margaret Atwood called The Handmaid's Tale. Laura, you have read the novel. I haven't, but I would love to hear just kind of generally 
before we really dig down into the plot later in the in the um, episode here. What did you think about this series as an adaptation of the novel? I thought it was a really, really powerful adaptation um, because it because it updates it a little bit. And we'll talk about the differences and the whys I thought it was a good adaptation later. I read the novel last November, so it hasn't even been a year yet. So it was still fresh enough in my mind that um, I could immediately see the differences. But overall, I feel like it was pretty true to the story and definitely packs the same, if not more, of an impact, which is, you know, kind of what Atwood's original goal, I'm sure, was. It really captured that, for sure. This is one of those novels I feel like some people, probably a lot of women picked up, maybe some men too, but a lot of women may have picked this up in college if you took any kind of like women's literature courses or feminist studies, women's studies, any of those kinds of courses in college. It's not one that's probably going to be on high school reading lists, (laughs) Because the very premise of the story, it's a little advanced, maybe, or at least for when you and I were in high school. I don't know what the kids are doing these days. (laughs) But if you uh, took any kind of women's literature or American literature, even courses in college, you may have read it in college, but I I certainly haven't read it. And so it's, it's definitely one that I'm interested in reading now that we've gone through the series. So the basic plot overview is this. It is a dystopian novel in the not-too-distant future. The United States government has been overthrown by what was started as a revolutionary group called the Sons of Jacob. And this group, the show tells us, is a group that wanted to set things right and clean up the country. I'm just going to take a beat to let that (laughs) land with you. And so because of some kind of um, significant environmental collapse, Lots of terrible things have happened, but a a big side effect is that fertility has really been wiped out in this country. And so only one in five pregnancies end in a healthy birth, and and lots of people are just completely infertile. So for women, what this means, there's like a sort of new social hierarchy that goes into place with this new government regime. For women, first of all, women are no longer allowed to read or drive. There's lots of restrictions on women. If you're not a wife of one of the sort of upper echelon, the first class people, um, then you would be divided into becoming a Martha. Those are the group of the household servants. They do all of the household work. There are women who are aunts, who are really the most powerful women in the society, and they are in charge of training the women who have been forced to become handmaids. Handmaids are women who serve in households by bearing children. And then other women are either sent to what they call the colonies to clean up the colonies where they will probably die a slow and torturous death from toxic poisoning. Or we find out later forced to become a sex worker at a uh, secret brothel called Jezebel's. So Laura, having said all of that, I'm so curious about how you watched it. Did you do this as a traditional binge watch? Did you have to kind of piecemeal it out a little more? I'm so curious about how you took the series in. I think because I had read the book, I I was less scared of the story. I've I've seen on social media the people who have, have no knowledge of the book or anything who started, and it freaks them clean out like from episode one. And there's such a underlying tone of um, terror and just like 
fear that anything is going, like anything really terrible is going to happen at any moment, that you're on the edge of your seat when you watch it. However, having read the book, I knew that there wasn't going to be like, this is not a spoiler, but there's not going to be like an atomic bomb drop or anything like that that is going to make you jump, if you will. So I, I could watch it maybe a little more not relaxed. This is not a relaxing story, but s- sort of knowing the general plot points of what was going to happen, I did binge it over a series uh, over like a week, maybe. So not a super binge, but I watched an episode or two a day. There's ten episodes, and I yeah, I couldn't stop watching it. And then when I wasn't watching it, I was thinking about it. I felt like it was really, really compelling. In that way, you know, I'm drawn to stories about women. This is the ultimate story about women. Um, so, it, you know, there, there's a lot of parallels to some fears that are happening now. Like, it, it will give you a lot to think about, no matter your worldview, no matter if you've read the book or not. Like, it is from, I feel like, from episode one, you know, the first few minutes, you are you are in it with Elizabeth Moss, who is wonderful and deserves yes. that Emmy nom and win, if Ugh. you ask me. Yes, she is fantastic. And and here in a minute, I know we're going to talk about some of the visuals, the just the visual experience of the series. But I I agree. I did not do a traditional binge in that I I could not just sit down and watch episode after episode. It it was one of those. I did sort of maybe a slow binge, <laughs> if that's a thing. I parceled it out over about two weeks because. Truly, after every episode, I'd have to get up and walk away and like walk around and kind of process some stuff. There's so much to think about. So many things happen. And there's just like, mm. so since you hadn't read the book, were did you right. watch it scared? No, I wasn't scared at all. Um, I had not read the book. I had a I had, however, listened to Pop Culture Happy Hours um, segment on it. So like about 20 minutes of discussion. And it was very spoiler free, but I knew the general setup. I knew what was going on. Also, from the time the series dropped on Hulu last spring, I've had friends texting me, are you watching Hands- Handmaid's Tale? Please watch it. I have to talk about this with someone. So I kind of had read just a, like a little bit to know like what the, the setup was. Okay. I was not prepared for how emotionally intense it is. Like I, I understood the main plot points, but I didn't, I mean, the, the plot setup. I didn't, I wasn't, I was unprepared for how, like you said, how you are into it with these characters, how um, visceral it is almost as an experience to watch. And as a woman who, like I already said, loves stories about women, um, because there are the different layers of women, as you already described, there is the commander's wives or the high-powered wives, and then there's the Marthas who are helping in the home, and then, of course, the handmaids. There are these different layers of women, I did feel like watching it as a woman, I could relate to each layer mm. of woman. Yes. Mo- yes. More than – that is captured way more in the series than in the book. That yes. you see throughout the series, you know, it's not like all of the commander's wives are terrible and awful and that all the handmaids are are – you know, innocent and, and all of that. So like, it's, 
I mean, they are innocent in, in what they're being forced to do. But I mean, like, they're every every single woman character and woman ranking, for lack of a better word, had complexities that yes. you could identify with or be, like, horrified by. All of them. Yes. Even the ones so that you that true. you feel sorry for. I mean, you feel sorry for all of them because even the, the quote-unquote highest ranking woman is being completely controlled by um, – Men and a government that has said that women are only useful for becoming mothers, whether they're actually birthing the child or taking ownership of the child. So anyway, I, when watching it with that lens, I did feel an intensity with the show of how much I was connecting to or re- or repulsed by all the different women. Because, because of course, there's several important men characters – the husbands, the the commander that the main handmaid is in his home. But for like a lot of the story, didn't you feel like the men were just like a presence? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. In a very literal sense in that one of the um, groups in the society are called the eyes. And they are sort of the both um, observers of and enforcers of law. And they, they are all men and they are you know, of course, there's a deep sense of terror and um, fear surrounding them. So and they're just like sort of always present. Even I noticed even in scenes that have nothing to do with a character being spied on, you just they're they'll just be like an eye walking past, like shining a flashlight and around like people's like the, the grounds of a, a private home. Mm-hmm. They're literally everywhere. And so in that sense, the the concept of a, a government in a society controlled by men, it's so pervasive. It's visually per- pervasive and you really get that. But yes, in terms of character exploration, I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, some people have called this a feminist dystopian and I can understand that view on it because the people who are the characters who are given the most complexity by far are the female characters. Right. Here, so. And you, But you can't even say like, it's fully anti-man, although right, the, right. there is a lot of um, menacing male and ultimately male power takeover. But the the women are yes are so complicit, so complicit that you're like this. There is plenty of anti women as well, like just of society um, downfall, if you will. That the women were that some of the women were completely complicit in, if not, you know, like equal partners in bringing us to this place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And see those types of uh, angles in, in those plot lines that run through it. That's part of why I could not do a traditional binge. Like had to just like think about all of this stuff. There's so much thinking that goes on in this series. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the visuals. We've kind of alluded to it, but this, the whole series is so visually striking and they use the, the, the camera, they use viewpoint, they use so many different things to really draw you in. And like we've kind of already referenced, make the story so personal. So I think even from the opening, when we have, um, well, first of all, the, the, the very opening scene is a very action-filled, very tense 
um, sort of set up for Alfred's story and, and how she got to be where she is. But when we first meet her in the home of the Waterfords, where she has been posted or stationed, basically, the camera does this very cool thing of zooming in so, 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 so close on her face. And that's all it kind of fills the frame. And we just have her inner monologue happening, her inner thoughts. And it's like moments like that, you you know, from the very start, like this is going to be a completely different visual experience than what we're used to in lots of TV that's being created today. What were some of the aspects of the aesthetic and the visual that stood out for you? Well, I especially loved and noticed throughout how the show was was um, color treated. So like, mm, yes, it had almost like a filter on it. I know that's become such a bad word, but like the whites were super white. Yes. Um, yes. The reds were super saturated. And then when it would flash back to her time before the war, before this current society of Gilead, it was it was sort of not soft focus, but almost like not totally sepia, but you know what I mean? It was a different color yes. tone. So I was yes. in, in a happier color tone, honestly, like a warmer. Right. Warm, yes. Yes. And then in the in the current story, in the Gilead, it was so contrast yes. focused. So, you know, it, really, it, was, it was really dramatic feeling. Yeah. And yes. I, I also super loved the set design, which I didn't – look up who did the set design, but I thought it was very well done, like the homes where she lived and, and all of the fancy homes, wealthy homes that a lot of the handmaids lived in were beautiful homes, sort of objectively beautiful, but they were also very cold. Like they were made out of stone. Yes. Um, you know, they were not warm. Um, so like that was nice. And then she flashes back pretty often to her training as they're training the handmaids and um, they sort of seem to be like in a maybe a converted high school or something like that mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I loved that set design and even the sounds that were there so like they seemed to be in some kind of a large gym or something where they were training them and then sometimes you would hear a door open and close and to me I would be like oh I know the sound of that like high school gym door, what that sounds like. And it's like this yes. familiar sound, but in this terrible situation. Yes. There was a lot of choices like that in um, the creation of this world that I thought were very smart yes. to, to like harken back to familiar sights mm. or sounds, but then mm -hmm. set in um, – in, in what the world has become. I really liked it. But but my main standout was the coloring. I thought the and I was as I was watching it, I was gonna I was thinking, is this gonna look dated? Is this gonna look too stylized in a few years? Which uh, who can answer that? But I I appreciated it while I was watching it now. That is so true. I love that you brought out the difference between the current reality of Gilead and Alfred's flashbacks and, and we get some other character flashbacks as the series goes on too. Um I do. I feel like there's such a warmth. And like you said, it's almost, almost to the point of um, like a um, gauziness, you know, mm -hmm. to the flashbacks. Like it feels nostalgic. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Without, without really hitting you over the head with it, but you just, you, it's so striking then when you go back to Gilead, the cool tones, the sparseness of the um, decor, the, 
the outward perfection of it, but then also, like you said, there's just such a lack of warmth in it. Um, Another thing that was so interesting was the marketplace. So the handmaids are, in addition to their main job, which is being there to provide children, to bear children, uh, they also do the daily shopping for the um, for the households. And so, like, just looking at, imagining what a market would look like with no signs at all, because women are forbidden to read in Gilead. They're not supposed to know how to read, and they're they're not to be able to actively read. And so just like you, what, what's so disturbing and terrifying is that it's enough, like you were just saying, it's enough rooted in our reality. Like a lot of, I feel like a lot of dystopian things are so outside of any current context that we can imagine that it's easy to imagine like, oh, it's just, you know, it's like watching Game of Thrones, you know, even though that's not dystopian, it's just like so apart from what we're used to. And to have what we're totally used to our current context with just enough change to be radically different than how our current lives are. I feel like is part of the most, one of the most disturbing parts of how the series plays out. Because where they are is supposed to be like sort of modern day Cambridge or Boston Mm -hmm, or something. And so when they are walking on the street, like say the handmaids are walking to the market you can see, you know, buildings and churches and stuff. Some some of them are destroyed that they see, but otherwise it's still a standing city. Only all signs have been removed, street signs, um, anything like that. And then when you realize, like, it looks like, like a movie set, except it's supposed to be real. I mean, obviously – Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It is a movie. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And you're just like, oh, this is what it would be like if you just took everything to down yes. to its most base thing. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So when the series came out last spring, lots and lots of thoughts came along with it. Lots of think pieces. People had big thoughts and big feelings about why this series, why this novel adaptation Why now? Why is it so important now? And this is a part where even if you think you are probably not going to watch this for whatever reason, um, I hope that you will stay with us for this part of the discussion before we move into some of the more specific plot points and, and characters, because there's, there's so much here. I mean, first of all, I don't know about how this struck you, Laura, but the main premise of Gilead, uh, the new society, the new government that has overthrown, uh, the traditional U.S. government, it's based on Christianity. It's a it's a extremist form of Christianity. And so throughout the series, from the beginning to the end, you have people quoting scripture, some of the phrases that they use in greeting each other and, and the the way they speak to each other. It's pulled straight from the actual Holy Bible, <laughs> which many of practicing, you know, many practicing Christians around the world consider to be, you know, a holy scripture, holy text. And to hear that, that part was very disturbing for me to hear something that I have grown up reading and knowing and have great affection for used in this way. And I'm obviously Margaret Atwood does this very purposefully in creating the the foundation of Gilead is so weird and so disturbing. I, I found that really disturbing too. I think that besides the scripture part, it's hard to watch something 
that you consider holy and sacred and that you may even, you know, sort of bind your whole life to and around to be twisted and used Mm -hmm. in this fictional and terrifying way. Right. Right. But I think why it's relevant, obviously in the show it it goes to such an extreme, but why I think that it's relevant is because some people feel like that it is being twisted and used in a way to create fear or to create um, division of, of I'm right and you're wrong. And when you see that kind of rhetoric... Um, on your own TV or from your own pulpit or in your own communities, and then you see it fictionalized, like, so f- extreme, that is what was chilling about it. Like, if this mm. had been a horror movie where they just randomly threw in scripture, you know, first of all, that would feel very sacrilegious and you would but, – but you wouldn't, like – You'd be like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> to, right, right. to see it in a way that felt like, oh, because we have witnessed um, religion being so twisted in real life, to see it, right. see like this is how it's going to play out. Because to me, um, and this is where we're going to tiptoe into controversial territory, and, and I'm going to try and do this part without spoilers because I know we're going to do the spoiler part in a minute, but I think this is a really, really important part of the story and one of the things that really stays with me, and that is Serena Joy Waterford, who is the wife in the home where our main handmaid is stationed. So she, so um, Elizabeth Moss Offred will be having a child for Serena Joy. The handmaids are, are, you know, like surrogates. So we find out that um, Serena Joy was quite an advocate for submission, women, wifely submission. She has written a book called A Woman's Place. Mm-hmm. And she was like a big woman sort of speaker evangelist for that kind of thing. Obviously, we know people like that. We may even follow people like that and, and subscribe to that theory or not. To then watch it in this show of like, well, what her, to have what she preached then be played out to the extreme. So now she is in a home where she is not allowed to read or she has to be com- absolutely completely submissive to her husband who, when they started off in this, appeared to be more equals in bringing about the society. But now that it's played out, now that we're in that society, the husband's like, okay, now you have no voice. Right. No choice. Um, this is what we worked for. And so to see her be like, this is what I worked for. Yes. Yes. And she keeps a game face on. Yeah. But you can also sort of see, um, to me, not to make it trite, but it was like a be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you are really saying you want. Yes. Yes. Right. That is the, that, like you used this word earlier, and I think it's so appropriate. The chilling part is to hear, um, again, the not made up parts, like real scripture being played out to its logical end when you are interpreting it literally. To see 
in a modern context, what that looks like if you follow that thread. I, it's so unsettling. And it, the, again, it's one of the reasons why I just had to keep like, I had to think and think and think through a lot of things. I, it really challenged me. Some things, some ideas that I have believed in the past, some things that I have considered for the present. I, it's, it's a very challenging, um, train of thought. And I think that the way that Serena Joy is portrayed in, in the revelation of the role that she played in bringing the society into its current existence, it's, hugely, hugely powerful. And I mean, okay, so we're talking about this in in The Handmaid's Tale. It's definitely focused on Christian extremism, but we can look throughout the course of human history, you know, going back to ancient times and through the centuries, looking at different world religions, different philosophies, when again, when applied in a literal sense and taken to their logical end, this is not a new thing. This is something that has played out time and time again. And and back to the taking something and then twisting it, it was, you know, super relevant that the um, the main catalyst for why we got to Gilead was that there was a fertility problem. Yes, that um, people have are not able to bear children, so. That becomes the most important woman's rights issue there because the obviously you want to continue your society and continue to have children, but also like your right as if you're able to have them or the powerful women's rights, they were unable, most of them were unable to have them, which is a twist on what happens in current America, the biggest thing that always gets brought up when there's a woman's rights discussion is of course abortion right which is yeah. a choose which is the opposite of what's happening in Gilead is to choose to terminate a pregnancy mhm mhm and so it was the flip being able to have children versus being able to choose not to have children it was yes a flip problem but it was the same it's the same question yes Yes. Um, for me, that was the biggest challenge. Um, I have no challenge in the discussion of women equality and um, submission is not a word that is used in my marriage or life at all. So that part, while I thought was interesting, you know, just because of my background, theologically or whatever, but to me, it was the women's rights issue. Right. That was right. that was way more challenging to um, think about the implications of, like you said, follow following a thought process to its natural conclusion, which is right. to give men or other people power over your body and birthing decisions. Absolutely. And I think that one one thing that I hope is happening, maybe I'm naive in my hope for this, but I think that the abortion discussion has, in recent years, there's, there's, no, there's more place for nuance in the discussion. And that feels really hopeful for me. Um, because I think one thing that The Handmaid's Tale, like you said, it does so well is it really, really forces you to think about 
the the concept of reproductive rights and and what does that mean it is it's a flipped way of looking at it from what we usually talk about in our society but to just imagine a reality where women do not have control over their reproductive system either by they are they have lost control of it due to infertility because of environmental things in this case or they're they are only valued for their capacity to reproduce it's it's a lot it's a lot to think about and a lot to um really apply to what you think about the whole concept of reproductive rights so one of the things that I've seen people ask over and over um, on social media and, and, you know, kind of a question that people say, you know, as I was watching, I kept thinking and I'd have to pause it and really think about, like, could this really happen? And the fact is, like, it has already happened in in the United States. We need to, like, be fully aware of the fact that when women were uh, in slavery, African women who were forced into slavery absolutely were forced to become mistresses of the men who were in power over them. And that's not even something like uh, women not having control over their uh, reproductive rights, over their sexuality is something that wasn't just hundreds of years ago, even in the last century, uh, Latina women in this country were um, in some parts of the country and under some circumstances had forced sterilization. Um, there are instances of this happening in our not too distant past here in our country. I think as white women, this again, a big challenge for me that I had to confront because I was also watching with horror and thinking, could this happen? Because in my context of history, this is something that would is just so unimaginable. But for a lot of women of color, of people of color in this country, like this is horrifying because this is something that has happened in our mm-hmm. nation's history. It may not have been um, on the scale that we see in Gilead, but if you think about you know our nation's roots and what was happening in slavery then. Yeah, it was state sanctioned that these things were happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rapes and uh, forced to have children or forced to abort children, like right. both. And so, and again, circling back to sort of what we already said, to me watching that, my biggest conviction came from the the women who helped enforce that. Right. Like yeah. me as a woman, I wasn't, you know, watching it and being like, oh, stupid men got us here. <laughs> like I was watching it and being like, oh my gosh, like the the women are doing this mm-hmm. to the other women. Right, right. And that was my, that was my big conviction, if, if I may use that word, because I felt like what have I espoused or looked away from? Mm-hmm. In our society and um, from from everything, from seeing uh, what religious things are being preached to to what laws are being passed, like whatever, all of these things that are societal, I felt like, oh, I am not – I have not been involved enough. I have stayed quiet. Right. Yeah. And when yeah. you watch 
there's certain little characters I felt like, you know, there's some obviously like villainous women in, um, in The Handmaid's Tale. But there are certain little characters that pop out. Some of the handmaids, maybe some of the Marthas. Um, you get a glimpse from maybe even one of the aunts that you're like, oh, they were just, they just didn't do anything. Right. Their passivity yeah. mm. mm-hmm. aided this along. Yes. And that yes. made me be like, would that be me? Would I just be the person who was just like, she didn't want to cause ruffles and didn't want to, you know, annoy anyone and then um, and then end up in this bad place. You know, w- one scene that really stuck out to me, again, I don't think this is really a spoiler because we've already said there was like a war that got us to here and – or not a war, but like a takeover. There's a scene where a lot of the characters who then become handmaids and whatnot – um, Elizabeth Moss is sitting around with her husband at the time, her best friend at the time. As stuff starts to happen, like they they cut off all women's credit cards. Mm, yes. There's a scene where they're sitting around the table and she's like – and this is – it's kind of what would be modern day now. They have their smartphones out and they're watching the news and they're like, but this, is, this isn't like really happening, right? Like this is going to kind of work itself out in a few days, right? Like this isn't like – this is like a weird – like the world's gone crazy for a minute, but it'll kind of right itself. It's sort of the conversation that they're having. And I was right. like, how many times have I said that? Right. Like, isn't this crazy? Right. And then yeah. that'd be the end of sentence instead of being mm. like, what can we do to make this less great? Like something needs to be happening. This isn't going to right itself in a few days. Right. Yeah. That that was a big scene. Um Again, for me, because it was set in kind of now, and just right. their kind of disbelief. They're watching the news, and they're just like disbelief, but they were also sort of – they were only mildly concerned. Right, right. Because they were still living their lives, and it's just like, yeah, it just seemed like, oh, this can't possibly stick. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, I would say this. You know, I know a lot of – uh, a, a, a lot of our listeners are um, are highly sensitive. They identify as highly sensitive. I certainly do. I'm way up on this scale. And so I've seen people say, no, I, I just can't do this. It's, it's difficult. It's going to be difficult, too difficult to watch. And I would say, truly, if for you this is too difficult to watch, I would encourage you to go look up some of the episode recaps and just read through. Because I know a lot of people have said, I can't watch things that are disturbing, but I'm okay with reading it. And if you go to Entertainment Weekly or Vulture.com and just read the recaps, you will still get the sense of what's happening here and how important this series is in this moment in time that we're living in without, you know, necessarily doing the whole 10 hour <laughs> viewing of the series, because some of this stuff is just too important to avoid. It really is. So, okay, we've talked through the generalities and why we think it's important. We're going to go ahead and transition now into talking about some of the specifics of The Handmaid's Tale. So if you need um, a spoiler-free discussion, now would be your time to go ahead and leave us for today. So, okay, Laura, we talked about, should we talk about characters? Should we talk about moments? Let's talk about some of the big powerful, moving, standout moments from The Handmaid's Tale? What were some of the the ones early in the series for you? 
I've talked about some of them already, but there are a few we haven't mentioned that really stuck with me. One that comes right to mind is Janine, who is a handmaid at the training center with Alfred, then goes and gets pregnant, is is one of the first handmaids that we see get pregnant, deliver a baby. She has, um, when they all go to the house for the birth. Yes. Yes. And the miss, the, the, um, woman of the house sort of stands behind her and pretends to be pushing. So, so weird. It, so, it was, yeah. That whole part was very disturbing to me. Um, how she was like the the woman of the house who was not delivering a baby but was like pretending to deliver a baby was like get, her friends were giving her ice chips and they were like coaching her yes. and she was like breathing. That whole scene, that whole long, long scene and then <sighs> Janine delivers the baby and then they all gather around the baby and all of that. I was like, oh, that that, that stuck out to me. Yes. Well, even to go, I mean, to go back, one of the first moments that really stood out to me was way back when Alfred, um, June is first at the training center and Aunt Lydia says, says something about how this will become ordinary. This basically, this, I know everything seems weird now, but this will become ordinary. This will become normal. And she says it in a way that's really reassuring. That was so startling and disturbing to me to think about how truly the most bizarre things that you're instructed to do or the most bizarre set of circumstances you find yourself in, humans have the capacity to adapt. And Aunt Lydia, you know, is saying it in a reassuring way, this will become ordinary. It'll be fine. And just like how startling that is to realize, like the the craziest of things we can get used to Mm. and how that applies in a modern context. And so even, you know, like when they take us in to the camera brings us in to the first ceremony with Alfred and Commander Waterford and Serena Joy in the way the camera shows their faces and the acting is so amazing in that because without a word, all three of those characters convey like, you know, you have Alfred trying, trying so hard to just be completely invisible in the whole thing. But of course, you know, being assaulted in this way that's completely condoned. You see Serena Joy's, you know, sort of quiet anguish over the whole thing. Um, in the beginning, we see Commander Waterford trying to, you know, sort of have this impersonal approach to it and how that changes as the series goes on. Um, the, the actual watching of the ceremonies is in the, in the way they're filmed, the way it's presented, it's so, so, um, unnerving. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think even more than reading it, which I haven't read the novel, but even more than reading it, just actually seeing the mechanics of it. Wow. It's tough. It's tough stuff. Yeah, it's tough. Um, okay. Other moments, other standout moments. Anytime a name is revealed, anytime handmaid reveals her name i think that's so powerful that the whole idea of names are so important throughout throughout the series and again i think this really harkens back to slavery in our country when um you know slaves were being brought to this country people were given new names and they were literally named after 
the the people who owned them, the the family name of the household that they were sold to. They had to give up their own name that they had been given by their parents. They had to relinquish anything that was culturally important to them. And one of the things that they lost were their names. And to be named after the person who has power over you is uh, so dehumanizing. Mm. And so in The Handmaid's Tale, anytime, you know, when we have June reveal her name, or we know Janine's name kind of from the start, but when Emily... Um, who we had known as Off Glen reveals her name. Just like those are such powerful moments and really made me think about the importance of when you're in a circumstance where everything has been taken away from you, just to have the dignity of your name and to know that you have a name that is outside of this bizarre and completely disempowering set of circumstances was really powerful. Mm -hmm. I also like the moment, speaking of of Glenn, and we have not mentioned Alexis Bledel yet, who I think is giving the performance of her lifetime. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I was not a huge Gilmore Girls fan. I have watched some of it. I mean, back in the day. I haven't watched rewatched the recent ones. But anyway, I know enough about her as an actress and other things that I've seen her in. This is unlike anything she has ever done that I have watched. And she mm-hmm. is excellent. She should have been doing roles like this from the beginning. A hundred percent. I will tell you, I sort of famously have confessed I've never watched the Gilmore Girls. So I wasn't super familiar with her. But I literally didn't recognize her. I know. She's very uh, gaunt. She's lost, uh, yes. she, you know, she's lost a lot of weight to look almost ill in a way, which makes sense for the role. Yeah. And, you know, I... <laughs> This is a complete side tangent, but I'm going to say it because I know we have a lot of Gilmore Girls fans. She has such a cute face and sort of an innocent-looking face. I understand why she would have been cast as Rory Gilmore, especially, you know, when she was a lot younger. Like, she is very, very cute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In this role, which is very serious and dark, um, her face, which is still cute, although now, like, very thin and and – with the shadows sort of emphasized and everything like that. I just felt like there was so much more depth to Mm. her and to her performance, taking a face that is cute, if you will, and making it so dire was, was um, really, I just thought it was so effective. The casting of her was so effective. Just the way that she looked and acted and almost kind of what we as an audience know her as. I mean, she's – Rory Gilmore is a pop culture, very sort of famous role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I saw her at the airport once and you're immediately like, there's Rory Gilmore, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Even though I don't watch the show. I still know – you know what right. I mean? So I just thought that was just like such a brilliant bit, bit of casting and that she does such a good job. So I'll say saying all that. But when she gets taken away – Mm-hmm. Both the scene where it reveals in the hospital what they've done to her, which yes. is horrifying, and yes. then the big reveal uh, behind the head, the hood thing, the wings, when the new of Glenn turns to offer it and says, "I am off. I am of Glenn." Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I just got yep. chills. That was yes, so powerful to me. Me too. And that character too of Glenn or Emily, when she steals the car and 
you know, the music is so important in this series too. I meant to talk about that earlier in the episode, but the music, so you have like a, in the flashbacks, a lot of times it's, you've got the, uh, the sort of under music of modern songs that we're familiar with. A lot of times I notice in Gilead, there's no music or it's very like dark, haunting classical music, but when she steals that car and the music is just like this soaring, like anthem going on behind her and the looks she's, she exchanges with Alfred, that moment. I mean, you, you really do. You understand the weight of, of what she's doing, but you understand too that they're in the human spirit. There's that thing that's just like, I just can, I just will not be conquered. So I loved that moment so much. Yeah. I love that too. I, I also like when I think about um even though I commend Elizabeth Moss a million times over she's in almost every scene of this yeah. show several of the scenes that really stand out to me are the other handmaids so obviously mm-hmm. Alfred and then I really was impressed with the actress who played Janine yes yes that's a standout performance. That is a standout performance because she obviously has, like, gone a little nuts and lost it. Of course, mm-hmm. we don't know how she was before. She, it's clear, you know, from the training session where she's, like, a little mouthy that maybe she was, um, you know, like a sarcastic kind of mm-hmm. rebellious type of person. And she obviously has, like, a little bit lost her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But you are you are there with her, even though she she's kind of – she kind of – has a little bit of betrayal in her. She sort of tattles on people and she runs away and she sort of does all these things, but you're still like, oh, you just feel for Janine. I did the whole time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So much compassion for her. Uh, and then dad gunned that she doesn't die when she jumps off that bridge. I know. <laughs> I know it. I know. But then later her face at the, you know, the stoning that didn't end up happening when when she's like, not too hard, okay, guys, or something like that. And then you just the the way she uses her face as she's anticipating. And then when it doesn't happen, oh, heartbreaking, that whole thing. She does a phenomenal job. And in, in that scene, it was of Glenn 2.0. Yes. Um, the new of Glenn, not Emily of mm-hmm. Glenn, who – who has said all along, which I thought this was so interesting. This was, goes back mm-hmm. to our earlier discussion about how women are complicit yes. for their own reasons, selfish or not. But when she was like, yes. look, this is a better life than I had before. And you have yep. to have sympathy for that. Even right. though objectively, this is not a better world. You have yep. to see, man, like to her, she's clean. She's fed. Her station people are nice to her. Um, or so she says. Yes. And you have sympathy for that. Like in her little world, this is a better deal. And so for right. her to be the one at the non-stoning mm-hmm. to come out and say, Aunt Lydia, like we cannot do this. You realize in that moment a little bit in her character, and I loved her facial expressions as well. Um, and we, we only get facial expressions, right? Because they're covered by all this hood. And yes. most of the times yes, yes. they don't even get to use their hands when they speak or anything. You know, you're really getting so much of their face. But you realize when she makes that, when she says, Aunt Lydia, we can't do this, you realize she is for women. Like, right. even in her, even in her admonishment earlier of like, don't screw this up for me, 
the the underlying message of that is we're in this together. You need to not screw this up for me. And then now yes. when it comes down to the non-stoning, she's the one to be like, wait, we can't do this to one of our right. own. So she is for women in her way. Mm-hmm. It's like another one of the complexities of like, you can't just say you're for women or not for women. I mean, you can't. Right. So true. That scene is so powerful. Um, and, you know, kind of speaking of the non-stoning, it, you know, it's a callback to the first episode when we have the mass... Salvaging, they call it. Salvaging. That's what it was. Yes. Um, of the man who had been accused and convicted of rape, turning the handmaids loose on him. Um, that was so powerful. Again, visually so powerful. And to, I think that the energy of that scene really conveys the pent up absolute rage of these women who are forcibly raped every month and the release of that rage onto another human being. And just the, just the idea of what living under these circumstances could turn you into. Again, you see it, you see it come through in some good ways again, like with um, like you were talking about the, at the non-stoning, but it offered and, and all of them were fully participating in that um, when they had an opportunity to release that group release of of rage and horror and truly the murderousness that you would that would kind of uh, bubble up within you in that kind of circumstance. Now we Super have powerful. not said a dadgum word about Nick. Nick, what I mean again, one of the few men I feel like who has any kind of complexity. It's not as much as I think the women characters get, but. Yes, the the development of the relationship there, the complicity. There's a couple. Of, I feel like there's at least a couple of scenes where he kind of s- starts to say something like "I'm sorry" or "I wish," and June really challenges on on it. Like, what? What do you wish? Or you're sorry? Like, what? Okay, so you're sorry. So what? You know. It's also there was a couple of key moments. Of course, you know, you realize that he cares for her because. In the end, is he kind of saving her? We don't know. They leave it ambiguous. Right. Yes. Yes. But, um, you know, he's harsh with her in several different ways. And then – but then when he finds out she's pregnant, like, he, you know, puts his face and his hands to her belly. Like, he shows, like, a moment of sort of love and compassion. And he – so two things about him that I thought were really interesting – even after they give sort of his backstory and, and how he mm-hmm. came to where he was. He says to Alfred June at some point, like, you know that I couldn't have turned down when Serena asked me to supplement the seed. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't have said no, which in some ways you're like, well, he is sort of a servant in a way, other than the fact that he's an I, let's assume that's, that Serena and the commander don't know he's an I. So they, in his mind, I mean, he, in his way, he is also like being controlled and, and doesn't have mm. choices in the right. household. Right. However, when he does bend to her belly and touch her pregnant belly, he stays there knowing that when Serena comes in the room, like he's not going to yes. get in trouble for that. Right. When if that right. had, you know, like, and I was like nervous, like, oh my gosh, is she going to like. I know. Fire him or something, and he—he's. Then you realize he's a man. He is an Mm -hmm. I. He does have. He knows he's not going to be 
exactly. in trouble for this sort of little intimate act that he didn't mind that somebody else saw. Another person we haven't mentioned, and I just thought she did an amazing job too. The acting and casting, which is so good, was Rita, the Martha Rita. in their home. Oh my gosh. There's a there's a subtlety to her performance. There's a, such a humanity. And again, it, it really develops as the series goes on from her being so terse and so um, cold in a sense. And then, and then how we see her develop over the series to the end where she's devastated as they're taking Offred away, you know? Uh, I know. And you, so good. she's so mean to Offred in the beginning. And you realize then that maybe she was attached to the handmaid yes. that, that killed herself before Alfred got there. Uh, you know, right. at, at the very most minimum, she was traumatized by finding her. Yes. And so yes. she is ha- – she's going to build up a wall and, you know, perhaps be unkind to Alfred as a way to not be close to her um, mm-hmm. in okay. case. I have one question. There's one story loop, and I want to know what your interpretation is, on the whole – show that I did not understand. And it was okay. when they flash back to after the first handmaid killed herself in the Waterford mm-hmm. home and they're taking her away in the ambulance or whatever that is. Um, and Serena looks at the commander and says, what did you think was going to happen? Okay. So my interpretation of that is what we see happen with the commander in Offred, where it's come to my study, let's play Scrabble, let's, you know, get to know each other, let's make this into something romantic. And so I think that what happened with the previous one was the same thing that he had initiated that there was going to be something more there than just her being the handmaid, and that that the the one who killed herself had feelings for him and obviously didn't have a baby because they don't have a baby. But Something happened in that relationship dynamic where the handmaid, probably because the commander led her to believe this would be true, that she was more than that, that there was a real relationship there. And then we, I, I didn't even know if it may be in the novel that it's explored further, but something happened to where she realized, no, like this is, I am only ever going to be the handmaid to him. That was my interpretation of it. Mm. Okay. So it's not really further discussed in... In the novel, then? No, I don't remember it specifically. I do remember that they're all a little bit damaged by it. Like, they're all, you know, Alfred enters a home that has the weight of this thing. Yes. Yeah. Sort of there. But, um, no, I don't remember there being, like, a a true explanation. Because I feel like it's pretty – it may not be talked about, but I feel like it's known by Serena Joy and even – the other wives that Commander Waterford and the others, that, that there's these, that they're not pure and holy and righteous men. There's that scene with the one towards the end, Serena Joy and one of the other wives, and it's the, the commander whose arm gets amputated. And they're talking about it. And then oh right, the, the other wife makes some comment about something about your husband or what's oh, going on Oh, you need to keep your mind, like, your eye on your yes. husband. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So it's sort of like this common knowledge that the husbands are not holding up the righteousness end of the bargain, which, again, if we look at the history of patriarchy, going back to ancient times is often the case, (laughs) you know, humans are going to be humans. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, all of that is to circle back and say, 
it seems like it's known to Serena Joy that this is going on and it keeps, it continues to only end up poorly for her besides the betrayal of their marriage, you know, just like in the one thing that she wants, the one shred of hope she's written this book. She's led this revolution about the, about fertility being used as a natural resource. And she does not have a baby. And there's like this one thing. Couldn't you just like, couldn't there be the one thing that I want to have? And that is a baby. So. Yeah. Another thing that we haven't mentioned at all (laughs) is Luke. Yes. I was completely surprised when it's revealed that he was married when they met. I thought that was an interesting twist. It's not really that significant, I guess, in the main plot. But through, you know, in the beginning part of the series, he's just like, you kind of build up an idea in your mind about what kind of man he is. So that was an interesting um, revelation for me. Uh, but to see, yeah, God, again, amazing performance in terms of how he responds. See, to- I did not love him. Really? I okay. didn't. And I'm not, I'm not sure you're supposed to. Okay. And now maybe I'm, ta- I'm bringing over some strings that I picked up from the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where he is a good man. I mean, like, in comparison, clearly, he is a good man. But she sort of hints at in the book that and, – and we haven't talked about – there's some kind of major differences. But that she's not sure her husband hated it when oh, the, okay. the women sort of lost all their rights. Okay. Which I think you get a tiny hint of in the dining room right. table scene when he's like, I'll take care of you. Yes. Right. Right. Kind of thing. Um, like maybe he's a modern man on the surface of like, oh, this is terrible. But that like secretly maybe you know, it's not that awful for them to be in charge. <laughs> okay. I did not pick up on that, but that does make sense. Um, I get what you're saying. And so it's possible I was just bringing some strings to that in that I do like that they – you can't make him a saint. I wonder if that's why they mm. – the, you know, otherwise he's like a total saint if he – in his yes. storyline, if he hasn't – you know, maybe he was having right. an affair or – I mean, having an affair with with June, not mm-hmm. – you know, on his wife or – um how he kind of reacts in that scene of like, I'll take care of you. But then it's complex because, you know, Maura and June are like, you don't need to take care of us. And then Maura wants him to walk her to the bus or -hmm. to the station. And so then you're like, it's complex. Yes, it is. Because you do want a protection of a man sometimes when it seems scary. And you're not supposed to want that. Right. Yeah. And I thought that scene really showed Mm -hmm. the – the complexities of that, because that that's just like real life, like stuff that you don't even want to, you know, admit mm-hmm. to. But yeah. Okay, so now that we're talking about specific plot points and character development and all of that, I would love to hear, since I have not read the book, what to you stood out as some differences between the original text and the in the uh, Hulu version. There's two. There's a lot of little differences that. I'm sure they just chose for visual effect or, you know, whatever, clarity. But the two main differences, 
that stood out to me was that in the book, well, first of all, you never know names. You never learn June's name in the book. She always Ah. stays as Offred. Really? Yes. Okay, that's fascinating. So that's big. And also, and that sort of ties into this a little bit too, this is really effective in the book. Offred is much more of a kind of girl next door type. She is much more of, she was not an activist like June is in the show or even necessarily a modern girl. So So June in the Hulu version is obviously like a city girl. Um, yes. you know, she marches in what looks like possibly like a woman's march. Um, you know, very, she's very modern. She's a very modern girl. In the original Handmaid's Tale, Offred is, was not that in her past life. Now, I don't think she mm-hmm. was like homely necessarily, but she was very, she had, as this stuff went down, and maybe I should have even said this at the up. Uh, front part when we talked about this, as the revolution was happening and whatever, she was one of the ones that would have just watched. Okay. Gotcha. So Interesting. as a reader, you do relate to that because you're like, whoa, she's way more of like, how did we get here? Mm, right. Like I was like a good, I was like a good person. Right. And, right, right. and her main thing, she's just not that rebellious. She's just trying to stay alive and stay sane. Okay. A lot more. So some of the things that June does in the Hulu show, you know, being sarcastic back or being, you know, just kind of takes some risks that the Offred would not have done. Interesting. Interesting. Um, it, and it makes – now, that would have been less compelling to watch on TV. <laughs> right. Of course. Yes. But it's very relatable in the book. Mm. The second thing that – um, is a pretty big deal is that in the book, everybody is white. Right. Yes. This I is have read really yeah, a imp- bit about this. This is really important, a really important change that they have made because in the book, I don't want to say it starts with white supremacy, but that's definitely a major part of the revolution that came. So it's, it's biblical and there's a fertility thing. But it is also very much a white supremacy thing. And in obviously in the story on Hulu, this is not true. There are people of color. Um, there are several gay characters. Not that gay and race are synonymous in any way. I just mean it is more diverse. Right. Yes. Than the, the book is not that. Now, I can see why – I read a couple of interviews of why they chose to make the story more diverse, one of which is the very important thing of they want to em- employ people of color as the actors. Um, right. And they want to show maybe a more modern world where there is just uh, hopefully more diversity on the streets and in, in friendships and on that kind of thing. So that is a good choice for sure. But I also think what's important about the book story, because now um, we are sort of having this right in this very second in America, um, a, I don't want, I don't think it's a rise in white supremacy activism, but I do think it is a more visible. Yes. They have become more bold. Yes. Yes. And so sort of watching that and then thinking back to the original story of where some of this activism did start with 
that sort of language and end game in mind, you know, makes it makes it all the more relevant. Right. Right. Because I had read a, in a piece about The Handmaid's Tale, the TV version, that in the novel, it seems like from the outset, as the Gilead Revolution was happening, that they like physically rounded up people of color and whatever, anyone that was different. Yes. And like literally removed them, like shipped them somewhere. They moved them to the middle, to the Midwest, which because it, oh, okay. because in Gilead, it's only kind of the East Coast. It's not, they haven't taken over all of America. They've. Okay. So, um, I mean, it, it, all of America is either gone or, you know, not existent the way it was mm-hmm. before. But anyway, they round up the people of color and move them. To, uh, just, I think it's ambiguous. It just says like the Midwest. But then it okay. also sort of references, is that code for they just actually killed them all? Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. But I did not of realize Of course, that. it's also, you know, reminiscent of what we did to Native Americans. Oh, sure. Yes. Of course. Right. Yeah. That's, you know, a very obvious parallel where there's, some half truths to quote unquote we moved them mm, versus mm-hmm. well some mm-hmm. of them were moved many of them were exterminated yes exactly exactly again uh, the questions of could this really happen uh, that's a good starting point to really dig into some actual uh, world and United States history I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me one of the biggest chill bumps but in a bad way moments was um when offered and the commander are having a conversation in his study and it's kind of maybe in the middle or maybe even more towards the end of the series so there's a little bit more boldness to her dynamic in the relationship and he he says we just wanted to make it we wanted to make things better and she kind of challenges him like you know better how and he he even says he realizes that better never means better for everyone it always means worse for some. And I thought that is a, me- and to hear him saying that is very powerful. Like that there's a self-awareness, there's a cognitiveness of the people who have staged this revolution of understanding, like it's, a, it's actually only going to be better for us, mm-hmm. but it's going to be way worse for others. I was like, that is a message for our time. I know. And in those study scenes where he invites her down, which he's not supposed to ever be alone with her, let alone in the night, into his study, and you – and this happens several times throughout with different characters. You realize that the people in power think that they're being nice. Yes. Yes. By yep. offering these – basic kind what they see as kindnesses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're yeah. like you know you're not being nice by having her right. come down to play scrabble with you in the study in the middle of the night like maybe that's not even what she wants to do and you you want it for you exactly exactly yes and there's several of those like even when they offer her a cookie at the birthing thing like other things where they're like i see i'm being nice to you and you're like what right that offering the cookie thing to me is just like so reminiscent. Again, I feel like a lot of this harkens back to the actual practice of slavery in our country. The whole thing of like rewarding um, a slave with, you know, go in the kitchen and have them get you this treat or whatever. Like, again, assuaging the master's guilt because like, look, look how well they're treated. They get a treat from the kitchen, mm. you know? 
So, yeah. That's terrible. Are you going to watch a second season? Oh, 100%. Yes. I can't wait. And it will be interesting since it will be, as far as I can understand, completely off book from now because doesn't doesn't the novel end also with Alfred getting in the black van? Yeah, and, and it's also ambiguous. So the novel ends and you are unsure if she is being taken to um, to safety, possibly, mm-hmm. or if she's going to be tortured or killed. She's not pregnant in the book. I guess I should have said that. Oh, well, that's pretty huge, too. <laughs> that is pretty huge. She is not pregnant in the book. Um, so it's sort of just – which that is also – a. Now that they're going to do a second season, it's not a plot hole. But if it was to end now, you'd be like, because you would have never carted off somebody who was pregnant. In the world they seem to have built, her pregnancy would make her, like, very honored in an honored position Mm -hmm. for that time in which she's pregnant. And so were there not going to be a second season, that would seem to be kind of an obvious plot problem. Yes. So anyway, who who knows what's going to happen? They will go completely off book. Now, I will say that there is an epilogue to the book that um, is kind of I, – I read was sort of controversial epilogue. I didn't love it because I feel like it really changes the tone. Basically, what ends up happening is it flashes forward to like the year 2195 or something, and it's a professor at a mm-hmm. kind of – conference or, or something who is giving a talk on the ancient land of Gilead or whatever. So basically he is reconstructing a narrative of Offred and these handmaids that, you know, they found those notes or those letters and that she'd kept a record of. Okay. And so um, you're realizing that it's pieced together because the novel's sort of written really sparse. And so in a, some ways you're like, oh, you see, like, it is just a piece-together narrative of what we think happened. Okay. Okay. Because it's – they're, like, studying this – the downfall of America, just like how we would study the, you know, ancient Rome or something like that. So mm. – and it kind of gives these other really specific things that they think happen, and there's theories of what probably happened to Alfred when she went off in the van and, like, you know, that kind of thing. So – it's a definite tone shift at the end when you realize, like, oh, this is another – this is a man. It's a man uh, uh-huh. who is giving the story. You realize that you weren't t- maybe totally from Offred's perspective in the first place. So it's sort of a – like some people have even said, I wish that the epilogue didn't exist and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because it then changes because then you're like, well, wait, what if this was true – what parts of this were true or not true type of thing. It sort of changes the whole thing a little bit. But yeah. anyway, at the end of the book, you do not know what happens to her. But now yeah. with Hulu, they're going to go completely off book. And I read some even things about where they might possibly go with it, which was – which could be interesting. It's hard now, though, to not – so they made this show before last election – Mm-hmm. Not to say that our country wasn't having these very important conversations and themes and riffs prior to the yeah, election, yeah. because clearly we were. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope that they don't infuse too many current events right. into this story, because what is awesome about it 
awesome in the true meaning of the word awesome, that is that it is a story that it is a little bit timeless. Right. Yes. Yes. And has cycled through very, you know, in very predictable ways throughout history. history. Right. Um, yeah, it'll be so interesting. I, I do hope that they don't tie it too specifically to this country right now, because some of these, yeah, there, there's universal truths here. I also hope it doesn't get too like almost soap opera-y. Like if, if it is, which we were, I would think can safely assume if it's Nick's baby and she's pregnant, but Luke's alive and, you know, like, I hope it doesn't go too into the territory of, like... Love triangles. Right. Yeah. Which I don't, I, I don't think they will. I hope they won't. That certainly would be such a such a diversion from the, the first season. So, anyway, it'll be super interesting to see how they handle the second season, and I absolutely will watch. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for coming along with us for this conversation on The Handmaid's Tale. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on this series. So I know that you can find us on social media where we can talk a little bit more about it because I am 100% sure that you're listening and you're like, I can't believe they didn't talk about this thing, this very important thing or character (laughs) or part. So tell us what we left out on social media. Laura, remind us where we can find you all around the web. I'm on Twitter at Laura Tremaine and on Instagram at Laura.Tremaine. You can also sign up for my monthly emails that I send out that has all kinds of recommendations for what to read, watch, wear, and you can do that at lauratremaine.com. Okay. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. The show is on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show, and you can find us on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time.